Uh, if you were at the Third Baptist Church last Sunday for our pulpit exchange uh, with that Black Baptist Church, uh, then you uh, heard me make some remarks about Pauline Friedman Phillips. And as I was writing my remarks for uh, that rather long address, uh, because they, they have a tradition of a 25-minute sermons, so I, I will save you uh, that. <laughs> uh, unless you want to take a little nap first. Uh, um, my, uh, my mind was filled with all the other directions that I wanted to go in, so I'm going to just do a thumbnail sketch of Sunday morning. Uh, and for those of you that were there, please forgive me, but um, it's worth hearing a second time. Uh, and, uh, and then, of course, uh, the way in which uh, I want to expand upon those comments. Pauline Friedman Phillips is uh, better known by her professional name, Abigail Van Buren, also known as Dear Abby. Uh, she died last a week, a week ago Thursday. In 1956, uh, she began writing the advice column for the San Francisco Chronicle and was syndicated by hundreds of newspapers throughout the world, including South America, far off Asia. For decades, Phillips' column competed with the advice of Ann Landers, written by her twin sister, Esther Friedman Lederer, uh, who began her job in Chicago a year earlier in 1955, an event uh, that resulted in a rather stormy relationship between these uh, two previously close twins. Uh, but uh, later, they, they actually did reconcile, and uh, the relationship that they had growing up in Sioux City, Iowa, was restored. Their parents were immigrants who had fled their native Russia in 1905 because of persecution of Jews. Now, let's see. Two Jews answering questions. Now, uh, what is unusual about that? I knew you would like it. <laughs> a terrorist gets up during a flight, brandishes a gun, and asks, who are the Jews on board? From row 34, a, man voice, a man's voice asks, what do you mean by that? <laughs> but then I get ahead of myself. The two sisters' columns differed in style. Ann Landers responded to question, questioners with homie, detailed advice, whereas Abby's breezy replies were often flippant one-liners. For example, to the question, Dear Abby, are birth control pills tax-deductible? She said, only if they don't work. <laughs> in addition, she took great pride in the huge responses to calls for social justice or to help the lost and lonely. Operation Dear Abby, launched in 1985, encouraged readers to correspond with overseas military personnel. How many letters did you get uh, from strangers? Quite a few. Quite a few? 10, 50, 100? Uh, holiday time, usually 100. Isn't that nice? Well, let's not forget our soldiers next year at holiday time. Because... Oh, how nice. Well, um, we encourage our kids to do mitzvahs like that. So in spite of her popularity, she, of course, was very approachable. Uh, if a letter sounded suicidal, she took a personal approach. She said, I'll call them. I say, this is Abby. How are you feeling? You sounded awfully low. 
And they say, you're calling me? And after they start talking, you can suggest that they get professional help. As a humorous aside, have you ever wondered what kind of advice Mr. Abbey might offer? Here is one comic's amusing portrayal of a male Abigail Van Buren. Dear Mr. Abbey, my husband has too many nights out with the boys. Answer, this is perfectly normal behavior and it should be encouraged. The man is a hunter and needs to prove his prowess with other men. Far from being pleasurable, a night out with the boys is a stressful affair and to get back to you is a relief for him. Just look at how emotionally happy he is when he returns to his stable home. The best thing to do is to buy him a nice expensive present and cook him a meal and don't mention this aspect of his behavior. No wonder there's no male counterpart to Dear Abby. (laughs) Of course, people, especially Jews, seeking and giving both wanted and unwanted advice is nothing unusual. We are all guilty as charged because we only want the best for our children, no matter what kind of what I call stupid petrix they're capable of. I'm not surprised that these two well-known advice columnists uh, wrote their columns and that they were Jews because Jews asking questions is at the very core of our textual tradition from the very beginnings. In fact, someone said to me, why do you Jews always answer a question with a question? And I said, who knows? (laughs) The opening passages of Genesis contain no less than eight questions. The snake to Eve. Did God really say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Two, God to Adam. Where are you? Three, God to Adam. Who told you you were naked? Four, God to Adam. Did you eat of the tree from which I had forbidden you to eat? Five, God to Cain. Why are you distressed and why is your face fallen? Six, God to Cain. Where is your brother Abel? Seven, God to Cain. Am I my brother's keeper? Excuse me, Cain to God. Am I my brother's keeper? And eight, God to Cain. What have you done? Nobel laureate in physics, Isidore Rabi, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1943, once asked, why did you become a scientist rather than a doctor, a lawyer, or a businessman? like most other immigrant kids in your neighborhood. His answer should be a credo that is framed on the walls of every teacher and parent. Robbie said, my mother made me a scientist without ever intending to. Every Jewish mother in Brooklyn asked her child after school, so, did you learn anything today? But not my mother. She always asked me a different question. Izzy, she would say, Did you ask a good question today? That difference, asking good questions, made me become a scientist. Questions comprise the very core of Jewish existence. You may not be aware of a time-honored Jewish tradition, and the answers to that tradition 
begin with the completion of the Talmud uh, approximately a little more than a thousand years ago. As the Jews of the diaspora were spread throughout the world, they sought a vehicle for solving ritual and religious questions, and they would send their, their, their questions to the most respected rabbi in a distant city, uh, like the city of Vilna, where the Gaon of Vilna, the leader of the community, uh, would offer his responses, and those responses would actually become law. The vast collection of these answers comprises what is known in Jewish literature as responsa literature, the response to these questions. These are compendia of carefully thought through deliberations that continue to be written to this day by active response committees that consider questions that reflect changing times and mores. For more than half a century, the reform movement has published such volumes of responses every couple of years. A representative sample will provide some sense of how technology and the changing complexion of Jewish life resulted in never-before-considered dilemmas. 1960, first volume comes out, Reform Responsa. May a Jew donate a body to science? 1963, recent Reform Responsa. May an interfaith couple become synagogue members? 1969, current reform responsa. May a member be expelled from a congregation? May a pet be buried in a Jewish cemetery? I've had requests like that over the years. May a body be frozen upon the death, in the, uh, the death of an individual in the hope that if a cure will be discovered, it will enable the defrosted individual to live again. 1971, modern reform response. We used to wait to wonder what they were going to call the next volume. Modern reform response. Is surgery for transsexuals permissible? Now, this, this is 40 years ago. To see how times have changed, the answer was no. Today, the answer would be different. May a pig's heart valve be transplanted into a human being. What's the problem with that? Not kosher. You want to walk around with a non-kosher valve in you for your whole life? 1974, contemporary reform responsa. May homosexual congregations be established? No. Different answer today. 1977, reform responsa for our time. May a Jew have cosmetic surgery? May a rabbi officiate at a marriage of a transsexual? 1981, new reform responsa. Is a sibling ethically or legally bound to donate a kidney to a brother or a sister? How many times does a Jewish astronaut pray when he's in space when a day goes by every 90 minutes? You know the joke about that, by the way? I'm going off, off script. <clears throat> they send up the first Jewish astronaut, and he's got a list of experiments, and ground command says, do the first experiment, and all they hear is mumbling the entire time. They cannot figure what's gone wrong. He's not following any directions. He's not responding, whatever. They figure they better have a rabbi on hand when, the, when he comes back to Earth because something has really gone wrong. 
The rabbi approached him. He says, well, what's happening? He says, it was terrible. He says, every 90 minutes, a new day. Shachris, Mincha, Myra. Shachris, Mincha, Myra. <laughs> Praying three times every 90 minutes. Time uh, does not allow me to share additional inquiries from more volumes with titles like American Reform Responsa, Contemporary American Reform Responsa, Today's Reform Responsa, New American Reform Responsa, Teshuva for the 90s, uh, and so forth, right up to today. You, you get the idea. On a more informal basis, advice columns like those of Dear Abby and Ann Landers are a time-worn Jewish tradition. When the two million-plus Jews of my grandparents' immigrant generation arrived on American shores between 1881 and 1925, and they settled in large numbers on the Lower East Side of New York City, they found an open, secular society alive with opportunity that allowed them to embrace the values and lifestyles of America. Religious observance was no longer the center of family life. As much as their new land provided opportunity, it also buffeted those greenhorns with a set of issues they almost had never been exposed to. Bigamy, desertion, separation, inability of immigrant parents to converse with their American-born children. Just as Dear Abby and Ann Landers provided advice for over six decades, advice columns under the title A Bintel Brief in Yiddish, Yiddish for a Bundle of Letters, appeared beginning in 1906 in the Yiddish-language newspaper, The Forward, pronounced Forvitz, <clears throat> Forvitz in Yiddish. Excuse me, the Dear Abby of that era was brilliant writer Abraham Kahan. Kahan, excuse me. He was the newspaper's editor. Here is how Kahan described the writer's advice to the column. <coughs> excuse me. People often need the opportunity to pour out their heavy-laden hearts. Among our immigrant masses, this need was very marked. Hundreds of thousands of people, torn from their homes and their dear ones, were lonely souls who thirsted for expression, who wanted to hear an opinion, who wanted advice in solving weighty problems. The Bintel Brief created just this opportunity for them. Now, these letters reflected the socioeconomic challenges of an immigrant population. Some of them were homesick for the land of their birth, seeking to adjust to new customs and tribulations. Some inquired about financial issues and expressed disappointment that America was not the haven that they once believed it to be. As one writer grumbled, I came to America because I heard that the streets were paved with gold. When I got here, I found out three things. First, the, pave, the streets are not paved with gold. Second, the streets aren't paved at all. And third, I was expected to pave them. Some letters addressed serious, heart-rending issues. Others were based on superstition, like a, a 1908 letter. By the way, there are anthologies of these. You can actually get that at the library. Uh, this 1908 letter written by a man who wrote that he had fallen in love with a woman with a dimple on her chin. 
but understood that, quote, it is said that people who have this lose their first husband or wife. And this was preventing him from marrying the girl. Kahan's response was direct and abrupt. The tragedy is not that the girl has a dimple on her chin, but that some people have a screw loose in their heads. <laughs> Rather direct. One would need, he continued, the knowledge of a genius to explain how a dimple in the chin could drive a husband or wife to the grave. Does the angel of death sit hiding in the dimple? Many of the letters focused on the social changes going on at the turn of the 20th century. In 1909, one writer inquired about ongoing discussions about women's rights. Recently, we read a report in a newspaper about the movement to give women the right to vote. Those in opposition argue that it would be very bad to let women get to the ballot box because that would destroy family life. The woman would no longer be a housewife, the mother to her children, the wife to her husband. In a word, everything would be destroyed. A woman must not mix in politics, they say. She was created to be dependent on man, obey him, love him, supply all his comforts, and be a mother to his children. The question arises, she continues, must a woman be a slave and the man a master? The same people who recently celebrated the 100th birthday of Abraham Lincoln for having freed the Negro slaves now talk with a satirical grin about women's freedom. If women are recognized as human beings, they must also be granted all the rights of human beings. I think that if women are considered human beings with all their rights, then family life would be better and richer. Cahan responded, justice can reign among people only when they all have equal rights. If one has more power than another, it leads to injustice. Those men who are opposed to giving women the same rights they possess are acting from tyrannical instincts because they actually want to rule women. Questioning is indeed at the very heart of Jewish life. Simcha Bonham once encountered a group of Jews engaged in idle chatter. The Rav commented to his students, those Jews are dead. What do you mean, they said? What do you mean they're dead? They look perfectly alive to us. They're dead because they've stopped asking questions and searching for the right answers, the Rav replied. The Rav and his students walked on until another student further questioned the teacher. How do you know that I'm not dead? He inquired. The Rebbe replied, because you just asked a question. The, pre the precious nature of inquiry and the Jewish emphasis on in-depth probing provides an important lesson about the Jewish understanding of what it really means to be alive. Talmudic sage Rava opined that the question asked of individuals at final just, just judgment is, did you look beneath the surface? Indeed, Rava placed a premium on inquiry because Jews' questioning is the leavening of life, a notion echoed by the poet Rilke. Have patience with everything unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves as if they were locked rooms or books written in a foreign language.
someday without noticing it, you will live your way into the answer. Amen.